Tonight's guest is Jeremy Goldman, and hopefully his co-author, Ali B. Zagat, will be joining, joining us momentarily. The new book is Getting to Like, I think maybe you can see it. It's uh, How to Boost Your Personal and Professional Brand to Expand Opportunities, Grow Your Business, and achieve financial success. And Jeremy's the founder and CEO at Firebrand Group. And Ali is a copywriter and uh, content specialist at 160 over 90. And since you guys are branding experts, rather than write an intro for you, I'll I'll let you open up with your with your brand statement. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, thank you so much uh, for having us. Uh, really excited to be talking to you guys. Um, essentially, and let me uh, kind of move this uh, over a little bit. You might get to, there we go. This is going to be a little bit more stable. Hey, everybody. Um, so Firebrand Group uh, is essentially a future-proofing firm that focuses on anticipating what the next few years uh, is going to be like and essentially uh, that's what I focus on. Uh, I don't like to use futurist because that's kind of obnoxious. That kind of implies uh, 20 years out. Uh, and, and another one of the key aspects of what I do is really try to guide people through how to use, use digital uh, channels uh, in order to better themselves and to build personal brands for themselves. So hence the topic of the book, Ali and I uh, researched for about two years before putting out. So now when I saw the, the title of the book, Getting to Like, uh, I, I was thinking, okay, so you're you're going to be telling me how I can get more users on Facebook and more followers to my page and things like that. And I, I was pleasantly surprised when I got the book that that's not really what the book is about. This is really a book about your career and the future of work in in this country and and probably globally as as we become more globalized um this is really what i i like to call a career 3.0 book right if career 1.0 was you work for a company for 40 years and then you retire and walk off into the sunset and you get little promotions and raises and a pension and all that kind of stuff assuming you don't bother anybody or do anything mm -hmm. too bad right and what we've been kind of living in the last 15 to 20 years has been you need to move around a little bit or maybe a lot. And each you kind of work your way up that way. Um, now there's no eventually. Right. There'll be that corporate ladder and there'll be some stability for some people and some people will get there through job hopping. But you give statistics in the book, a huge amount of our workforce will be freelancing, working gig to gig, doing contract work. Talk about kind of, because I think this is the, the foundation for everything that you, you kind of teach in the book. Talk about where the, the economy is going and why it's so important to, to, to start to define your personal brand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, to me, you're right. That's really the underpinning about why we thought this is such an important thing to, to be writing about. Because even within a few years, by 2020, we have about uh, 30 to 40 percent uh, of the workforce are going to be permanent freelancers or something along those lines, right? So that's huge, right? That's very significant. Uh, it, it gone are the days where you could be saying, I'm going to be working on the line, putting together cars for 40 years. 
and then uh, eventually I get a great pension and I know exactly where uh, I'm going to wind up and I'm not going to take any other jobs. People are hopping. People have to hop. People have to be flexible. All these things, uh, you know, you can't really put your head in the sand and pretend that they're not there, right? So um, that's why it's so important to fight against uh, the commoditization uh, of yourself, right? I mean, there are so many different factors that are trying to uh, economically say that you are a cog that can be replaced with one of 7 billion other people out there. Uh, so if that's the case, right, then, right. or I mean, if that's the case that that's what the market's trying to do, why not fight against that if you, if you want to be able to, to thrive, right? So it's not enough just to do a good job. You have to find a way to make sure that other people know that you're you're doing a good job. Um, what is your sort of your definition of personal branding? Yeah, so to me, you know, personal branding in some ways, it has a bad rap uh, in some circles. And I think uh, it really doesn't have to be. I mean, the idea of uh, a brand, when you talk about a corporate brand, is just the fact that they're trying mm -hmm. to manage their reputation and get known for uh, a few specific uh, things, right? You know, when you think of Clorox, what are the few attributes that you think of? Uh, when you think of Windex, right? Or when you think of PetSmart, I mean, these are just things that are popping into my head right now, but each one of them has a few core values. Uh, and and it's interesting. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people who don't do the, the work to think about when you boil yourself down to your essence, where, when do you have the best right. uh, potential chance to succeed in life? It's when you understand who you are and you lean into that, right? That's really what personal branding is all about. Right. So how do you go about getting that message out then? Obviously, social media is a big part of it, um, but it's not the only part. There's in-person events, conferences, networking. Um, there's also getting known with inside your own organization, which people don't think of. Where does somebody start? Somebody who's kind of maybe they've been successful, they've ignored this kind, this part of the process, and now they need to ramp it up some because the economy's changing, their company's changing, things aren't secure for for most people in this economy. Um, how does somebody start the process? How do they get going? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the top things uh, that I recommend to people uh, is first to, to really think about what your objectives are, okay? Because uh, depending on what your objectives are, you're going to be picking different types of content uh, and different ways of expressing yourself. Uh, and then apart from that, you know, you have to be thinking what platforms from a digital perspective you're going to be operating on. So I know people, and we, I was actually at a conference where we were talking about this today, uh, where somebody just really likes Pinterest. It just speaks to them a lot. And I ask them, you know, so what do you do for a living? Uh, and they essentially work on these legalistic contracts pertaining uh, to government contractors, you know, like they put together uh, agreements like that. And, you know, like that's one of those things where if you want to get known, uh, Pinterest might not be the right platform for you if that's the type of thing that you do, right? right. So um, this is, and by the way, Ali is logging in via Facebook. Um, so okay. so maybe we'll have her via mobile in a minute. So uh, fingers crossed. The, okay, the, the, yeah, the whole entire idea 
of selecting where you're going to be operating and what are the types of content that you can use to tell your story are really important, right? Because like you, you, you build your brand through uh, podcasting and through audio because that's one thing that you're you know you're passionate about and you have a lot of skill at right so it actually makes a lot of sense um, to uh, try to do it that way and it, likewise I, I always think that people need to essentially lean into what they're passionate about and what they are gonna be willing to work at over a long period of time Right. So it's it's not a matter of this is the formula, this is the platform, these are the, the, the digital spaces you should operate in. It's a combination of where your audience is, what you're comfortable with, what you're good at, what you enjoy doing. Um, talk about, because you know a lot of people who are going to watch the show are into video and live video and live streaming. Talk, talk about what you think the role is of video and in particularly live video for individuals establishing their personal brand. Yeah, you know, so live video uh, is actually going to be huge. And it's funny because you take a little bit of time to get a book out there into the world. So because of that, uh, and by the way, big, bad, these are totally pink. Um, I try to match to my outfits every day as much as possible. And today I just screwed up and the, the only ones I could find were pink. But one of the things that people generally know is I was um, wearing, you know, part, uh, a, a partially black outfit today with this. And uh, one of the things that I used to brand myself happens to be this black teddy bear. I change those uh, every day. So if I'm wearing black, I've got the black teddy bear. So I should have the hot pink one to go with this anyway. Sorry about that. What was the question again? I totally derailed myself. Um, I was asking for people who are into video live and live streaming and live video. What role can that play or should people look into playing definitely, definitely. <laughs> for it to play in your personal brand? Because it's a powerful tool and it's not a tool that everybody's using. Right. So. And, you know, you just hit the nail on the head with uh, the last thing you said it's not a tool that everybody's using. So one of the most important things is to actually be using tools that other people aren't using or using techniques that other people are not using. And that's because you stand out, right? Um, you can be, if you say that you want to create the best uh, content about fly fishing in Alaska, okay, and, and you're going to, every single time you do a live stream video, uh, you uh, do it in rhyme. Okay, you're going to stand out and a lot of people will follow you. Why? Because you were the only person in the world who is doing that exact thing. So if you want to um, write a, uh, like, let's contrast that with um, Snapchat. If you were going to write long form articles about Snapchat and how to use Snapchat, well, there are about 200 million people who are doing the exact same thing right now. I happen to be one of them. And, you know, you have to accept the fact that that's how much competition you have with your product. You're choosing to jump into a niche that a lot of other people have cho chosen to ju uh, jump into. So, Ross, I think you're entirely right. Live streaming is a differentiator right now. And what happens with all these technologies is you start out uh, with a relatively low bar, uh, just operating within uh, that, that particular avenue uh, sets you apart. And then bit by bit, people expect more from that uh, 
you know, channel. So uh, just being there won't be enough to set you apart. You're going to have to actually work on your content and be able to think uh, well on your feet, be relatively presentable physically, uh, make sure that you speak intelligibly. All these things actually really add up. So if you feel that you have the types of qualities that can make you a strong live streamer, jump into it. But this is the flip side. Don't just jump into something because it's the hot, uh, you know, new ticket, right? I mean, the the next uh, shiny new object uh, is not necessarily going right. to make you successful if that's not the type of thing that you feel you're going to excel at. Well, let's talk about Snapchat since you mentioned Snapchat. Um, a lot of people use Snapchat as another messaging app, right? They don't spend a lot of time telling stories and things like that. It's another, it's another vehicle like Facebook Messenger, right? Other people do funny stuff, comedy stuff that's basically for their friends. Is Snapchat a platform that people should think about telling stories on um, as part of building their personal brand? And is Snapchat material worth repurposing for that purpose. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. I think that the storytelling aspect of Snapchat is real. Uh, and you have to kind of understand uh, what are the best things about each one of these platforms. Generally speaking, when a platform shows up, I think uh, everybody who's in the chat has noticed this, you don't just wind up starting up uh, to replace something uh, and, and do pretty much the exact same thing as before. When Twitter showed up, it was a different animal than Facebook. And likewise, LinkedIn succeeded because it has a clearly identified niche that it really has capitalized on, uh, leading to a pretty decent-sized acquisition, right? So, uh, so, so mm -hmm. you know, when you think about Snapchat, the storytelling and immediacy uh, that's pervasive in Snapchat is the best way to be successful on the platform. So if you don't really embrace that, uh, you're not going to be successful, and then it's not worth uh, to even be on the platform. Uh, now, the idea about repurposing, I think, is a really good point. The one caveat I would say is uh, one thing everybody tries to do is say, I'm just going to do something on one platform, and I'll repurpose it as easily as possible without a lot of remixing. <laughs> right, right. And that's the thing is like you have to make sure that it doesn't come across as lazy because when you take shortcuts with uh, brand building, somebody else can take that same shortcut. And the people who succeed are the people who don't take the shortcuts, who spend extra time in making sure they get things right. Right, right. So in building and using social tools to build your, your personal brand, most people obviously start with LinkedIn. And the first step is kind of to use it as an online resume, right? And then maybe they do a little social interaction there. And then a lot of times the next place for personal branding and business purposes, people will go to Twitter. Is Twitter still worth the time? Because it's so noisy. It's so busy. You get so few responses a lot of times to what you what you share outside of Twitter chats where you can learn and really engage with people and make new content. How much time or what part of the equation does, does Twitter still fit into? So Twitter is definitely still useful. I think, and this is, by the way, one of the things that, uh, you know, often people are asking uh, these days is like, does Twitter still have a reason for being? You know, they're definitely, when you're talking about real-time, immediate conversation, 
Twitter is basically the world's chat room. So there are a lot of great things that you can use Twitter for. Now, it's not to say that there haven't been some kind of uh, challenging statistics, like uh, more active users per day on Snapchat versus Twitter. Doesn't mean it's gonna always stay like that. Um, doesn't mean that Snapchat isn't going to take over. Uh, but you have to uh, think about it this way. If you say Twitter's noisy, and some people are getting less of a return on Twitter because they don't know how to do it right, uh, all of a sudden it's going to become a less noisy place, right? Likewise, uh, somewhere like Snapchat is going to become more noisy. The other thing I would say is that when a platform becomes a little bit uh, less noisy, what's good is that it, you're not actually trying to compete for as many eyeballs as possible. You're trying to compete for the right eyeballs, and that's the thing that I think I get very excited about. Uh, in some ways, people say that B2B marketing uh, is easier than B2C because you're not pandering on social media uh, if you're B2B to get 10,000 likes when it's clear that your you know, uh, client base is only a few dozen companies, right? You can really focus on making a few people happy. So uh, that's why I kind of say if Twitter's getting less noisy and le less active, that really lets you focus on reaching the right people instead of just as many people as possible. Right. And how much of it is, and particularly for people who are applying for jobs or trying to get clients and things like that, how much of it is not so much how much engagement you get on a particular post or even how many, you know, how, how much discovery there is in general, but it's that you have a digital footprint that becomes in a way an extension of your resume or a replacement for you from your resume. In other words, it doesn't matter so much how many people you're engaging with or anything like that. To me, if I'm thinking about hiring you and then I do what most people do, I Google you and then I see, okay, this guy's been active on Twitter. He's got a blog. He's got all these things. I care less about how many people are reading it or sharing it or whatever than the fact that it shows you have a mm -hmm. passion for what you're doing. You care enough to share that with other people. In other words, it it's a way to see what what you're made of. And also in some areas, in some industries, you might be the only person who's doing it. So already you're standing out from everybody else and it doesn't even have to be that good, right? I mean, there's something about showing up even if you're not it's totally results-oriented on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, well, uh, I think that's so true, and I think one thing I like to tell everybody is, so I was really happy with my first book, Going Social, but at the same time, there were a lot of people who I would have loved to have uh, read their social media book. They just happened to never write one, you know? So in some ways, it's right. like you can't buy the book that never got written in the first place, and I think it's kind of the same principle here, you know, you're, if you're talking about uh, uh, building a strong brand, being present on LinkedIn uh, matters. Being present on Twitter, you know, is actually going to help you. Now, uh, there are a lot of other people who are going to be on those platforms too, which is why it's not just enough to be present. And actually, this presentation I gave today, uh, they were asking about some of the things that uh, you could do to bolster your Twitter presence. And one, one person happened to say, well, you can just, you can like 
everything in your feed and people will see that you exist and that you're engaging with them. And I say, yeah, but you know what? Somebody else will hit like as well because it's a very easy thing to do. Uh, now, if you comment or if you share things that they've done and if you do the things that are a little bit harder to do, often those are worth it. You know, um, when people build out uh, infographics or even when Firebrand, we recently released a uh, future of social report uh, with a few partners and that did very well. And it did well in part because it was really freaking hard to put together, you know? So it wasn't just regurgitation. It was actually talking to 550 executives and saying, uh, what does the future of social media look like? So it's all about uh, not taking the shortcuts. And when you do, you know, make sure that they make sense for you. So what are the, some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing ignoring their personal brand altogether, but people who are trying to establish one, working hard at it, and maybe they make you scratch your head or shake your head a little bit, and you notice that they're doing some things wrong. And what are some of those things that you're seeing a lot of or too much of, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that one of the top things that I've noticed that people do is they focus on uh, not focusing. And by that, I mean, they say, okay, you know what? I've noticed that the the 11 platforms that really have to be my top priorities are, and then I stop them right there. I'm like, so if you're saying 11 platforms are priorities, can you tell me which ones are not at that point? You know, um, you have to make right, some right. decisions. You have to decide uh, to suck at a few things and give yourself permission to suck in a few areas because that's the way that you're going to allow yourself to be successful in the rest of them. So if you say, you know what? My company's not going to have a Tumblr, and that's okay uh, because we really want to focus on building out our LinkedIn presence and one or two other places. Um, you're not going to wind up getting that good unless you say, we're going to get a C- in a few areas, and that's okay because nobody pays attention to the C-. They pay attention to your top platform. So uh, really, really uh, hone in and focus. What are a few examples of some really great things that, you know, not not looking at celebrities and CEOs and people who will garner attention if they walk out the front door, but just everyday people have done that have have made you really feel proud about, you know, wow, people are doing good things with personal branding. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I've noticed, uh, and first off, it, it is really hard, admittedly, when you cut out people like celebrities, because that is often who people think about, uh, about right? So one of the things I tried to do in uh, getting to like is to have people who embraced, uh, you know, being their best selves professionally from a lot of different uh, uh, angles. So for instance, there's Gabby Dalkin, who's a blogger and a YouTube blogger uh, who uh, does a lot of really great Instagram as well. Uh, and she's worth uh, following. There's uh, Melvin Kearney, who is a uh, actor and uh, a former armed services. He's a vet who actually uh, supports the Wounded Warrior Project and actually gets known for doing multiple things. I, I would say actually Jay Bear, the uh, digital marketing uh, consultant, mm -hmm. does a lot of good things. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the common things that most of these people that I speak to, you know, while they might plan a lot and uh, work at becoming very organized, they don't really think about personal brand and the, like they almost bristle at the term, like, 
hmm, I don't really spend a lot of time managing you know, my personal brand. And sometimes that's because people think that it has this negative connotation. It's just about embracing excellence in your particular field and your part particular discipline. And that's it. And a big part of it is how you tell your story, right? I mean, when we change jobs, when we relocate, when we switch careers, when, when, when we learn a new skill, there's usually multiple narratives about why we did it, right? Like on one hand, we're looking for new opportunity and we want to grow and all that, but maybe we also didn't really like our boss or, you know, we didn't want to live in a certain part of the country. And it's sort of how you tie that arc of your story together, right? It's, it's what you choose to put out there because there's several ways you can tell that story that are true, but which is the one that, you know, most represent not only put your best foot forward so it's not only sort of selectively editing out some things that don't help you but it's also which kind of ties it all together in a way that makes sense to people that they can easily say okay life isn't just happening to this person this person's making life mm -hmm. happen right yeah i mean i think that uh that's really the question i mean i think that uh you know you you need to figure out how to tell a, and by the way, I wish I could quote you on that, but uh, there are many different ways to tell a story that's true. Um, it's all in what you leave out and the choices that you make. Uh, and I actually tell the story of, there's somebody who I used to work with that left something off of their resume uh, because they said, oh, I only spent 2% of the time uh, at my job doing this particular thing. But it was an initiative that helped the company uh, cut down the total number of returns on their product dramatically, which then made the company successful. Like it was the difference between a profitable and an unprofitable year. But they said, oh, it was only 2% of my time. I, it shouldn't even be part of my story. It, it was probably the thing that would get them hired into a job that they would like better and probably and that's pays the, more, right? Exactly. The, so th that would be kind of like the thing, like if I was telling you about um, – uh, the, uh, a motorcade in Dallas in the 1960s. And I was like, oh, it was really good. Um, and I forgot to say, oh, the one thing is the president got shot, right? I mean, you, you're, you're hiding what the lead is for your story, the most compelling angle. Uh, and, and it's not to make light of anything. It's that there's always these interesting uh, things that happen that, that or almost like a through thread, a common thread throughout your entire career uh, that you can help explain when you move from point A to point B to point C. There's, there is a logical thread through there and you just really have to find out what that is and embrace it and then hone that story over time and figure out how it resonates best with people. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things I've noticed over, over time in working with people who are trying to upgrade their resume and their personal brand and stuff and are, are, are more talented than where they're at in their career, right? They, they, it, it's often how they talk about themselves on their resume, in, in, in networking with people. Um, they don't think enough about what the impact is of what they're doing and they more describe the job description, right? They, okay. Like the CEO also makes out a calendar and answers his phone and, you know, goes, she goes to meetings and things like that, but she'd never talk about what she does in that fashion. Right. 
But the person who may be in a low to mid-level job will often describe those, mo like, I'm supposed to talk about that, not about the time where the three times where I had to step in for somebody and came up with a marketing plan that, you know, <laughs> that, that brought in X number of revenue or whatever, or just that the contributions that they made in retaining a client or something could have led to some... You might not have been the only one who worked on it, but then neither is the CEO either the only one who worked on something. And it doesn't have to be the CEO, but you tend to see as people get higher up, they start to talk more about the impact that they're making. And I often wonder if I talk to those folks when they were earlier in their career, did they get there because they knew how to demonstrate the value that mm -hmm. they were bringing rather than justifying the low salary that somebody's paying them by, of course, you know, if you're, you're in a lower paying job, your, your job description isn't going to read like that of somebody who's making a big impact on the bottom line. But that doesn't mean you aren't making one. And I think just looking at your big picture is something a lot of people don't do. But that's your brand, right? I mean, it's not the, the, the duties that you do. It's 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 the impact that you make. It's the story that you tell. It's, you know, mm -hmm. you're not, you're not shoveling snow, you're clearing a path, right? I mean, well, it's, in some ways, it's kind of like about, are you talking about the product? Or are you talking about the benefits that people mm -hmm. are going to derive from that product? Right? So um, yeah, you're right. You, ha you really have to think about ultimately what you can do. And also, by the way, it's a combination of what you can do uh, versus uh, what somebody else can do because some, somebody else might be able to do exactly what you can do but if you can eloquently explain what your value is to an organization uh, better than somebody else can sometimes people look at that and say that that's politics I mean I th say that that's human communication this is the thing that has, has kind of like evolved us past like the lizard stage of evolution <laughs> so it's not really a bad thing to be able to say um, uh, that we're you know, evolving and that we're, you know, communicating effectively is one of those things that separates uh, the boys from the men or women from girls or I'll shut up now before I get into trouble. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So if anybody wants to uh, come in and ask Jeremy a question directly, um, just let me know in the chat or put something in the Q&A. And Allie um, mentioned she's going to type in answers since we can't see her, but she is actually real. Okay. So. so how much um, in your business at Firebrand do you deal with personal branding for clients versus product branding, company branding? Um organizational branding and things yeah, like you know, that. So uh, it's interesting for uh, when we started this book, uh, Firebrand was a lot younger. Uh, and now we really focus on, uh, from a corporate perspective, we focus on enterprises. But at the same time, uh, the personal branding aspect of it comes into play to a large extent because we will work with larger organizations where you know the average person wants to know who is the face of the organization, who's behind the brand, so to speak. 
And uh, in that sense, it becomes very important to be able to communicate with uh, executives about what they should be doing online. So uh, I kind of liken it and say the personal branding attributes, everything that we're talking about from a personal branding standpoint, we did that first and foremost to essentially give back because we think that this is important to the economy. Uh, so we've been very, very fortunate uh, to be successful and this is what we do to give back. But frankly, the same tenets uh, uh, with respect to personal branding apply to uh, to everything else that we do from a corporate uh, uh, marketing perspective. How's the book doing so far? Uh, yeah, you know, the book is uh, pretty good so far. So we actually, um, we had a uh, sellout on Amazon early on, which was good and bad. If anybody's obsessed with watching those rankings uh, and having your numbers uh, improve on a daily basis, uh, it's always a bummer to sell out, but it is kind of a nice thing to surpass expectations. So it's been pretty good. And it's, uh, right. you know, ran into a total of one person uh, reading it so far on a train, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, nice. So, Ali, I didn't tell you about that, but uh, surprise. So, um, so that was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, pretty good. That's great. That's great. So now this is your second book. You had Going Social. Um, are you thinking that this is something you want to continue doing and writing other books or are you like never again, right? You're exhausted. Well, the thing is, is like, and Ali knows this, but in some ways it was maybe even more difficult to work with a partner, even like a really qualified partner versus yourself. And this is, I think, no slight against one, either of us. There's just a lot of coordination that goes in there coupled with the fact that you're working kind of like for slave uh, uh, labor-esque wages, um, you know, pr uh, below mm -hmm. uh, minimum wage, simply because you spend a lot of time developing something if you wanted to have right. a little bit of credibility. So uh, at the same time, I, you know, and I was on Marketing Over Coffee. If anybody listens, it's a really great podcast. And I was talking to John Wall about this. There's something inherently stupid about being an author. And I just mean that stupid from a fiscal standpoint of, you know, some people are JK Rowling's and wind up, you know, hitting, uh, hitting it big, but you could be allocating all of that time elsewhere into another project of yours. Um, oh, you heard that interview. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, um, I think that, and John's great. He's a great interviewer also. Um, it's one of those things where I just think that, uh, if you have it in you and you feel like what you have uh, from a writing perspective can help some people, you do it because you feel like it's going to help. So I don't know if I want to write another book, but I feel like I probably will. Right, right. And I guess writing a book is a huge part of personal branding, right? I mean, a lot of people are going to know you through going social and now through this book. Yeah, and I think that that's probably true. And I think, you know, one of the things that, and likewise, Ali, um, uh, even though she accepted the invitation a bunch of times and then hates uh, her, but I, I'll say on her behalf, one of the things that's great <laughs> is that whenever anybody sees, uh, you know, a, a really sharp witticism in the book, you know, there's a, about a 97% chance that it comes from her. Uh, and w one thing that's great is that, you know, she's a uh, copywriter. She's been a copy chief in a few places. And uh, it, it's not just the fact that it keeps your skill sharp, uh, writing. Uh, it, it's because of the fact that, uh, you know, if you're looking to do something from a writing perspective, uh, you put this in front of somebody and it's, uh, it's so much better than a resume because a resume says, I can do something. But to actually show right. yourself doing something is so much more potent. 
and that's part of the power also of video, of blogging, of your, your digital footprint, um, participating in Twitter chats. There's a number of ways that people who writing a book might not be part of what they're doing. There's, there's a number of ways people can, can show that, but a book is a really strong way to, to obviously show that because you have to do it over 200 plus pages, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the dedication it takes anybody who's written one or known somebody who's written one knows that that isn't something that you, you know, you wake up one morning and go, you know, throw a book together and be done they, by you dinner know, time. Funny, I think that there is uh, like a little bit of a uh, part of me wants to find a partner or just myself and say, I'm going to see uh, how quickly I can write a book or rather I uh, going away for a long weekend and just saying, I'm going to write a book and uh, pencils down at the end of it. And let me see how long it can be. Let me see if it can actually be somewhat <laughs> substantial and maybe you clean it up afterwards, but how quickly can you bang something out of substance? I think it's fun to put yourself in situations where you challenge yourself like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You, you want to not uh, live in a world where content is king to the point that uh, nobody cares about quality anymore. So that's the good thing about a book. You hit the nail on the head is people still care about uh, uh, the, the quality. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, more and more, there's a race to putting so, mer so many different things. Uh, like everybody's trying to just throw a lot of crap out there as opposed to getting um, as much uh, quality out there. And I'm going to put a, a link in. I think we were asked about uh, yeah, getting to like.us uh, or getting to like.us. Uh, we um, created. Uh, where a little bit more information about us, some links to buy the book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever fine books are sold. If that's the thing that people say. <laughs> that's the expression. Yes. Wherever fine books are sold. Um, and now that you have two books and they've both been, you know, they've both done very well, you can probably just kind of add your name and somebody will like, you know, share half the profits with you. You don't even have to write it just to, you know, like people have those franchises where they there's all these books and each book they have a different co-author. I'm guessing the co-author is doing 90 percent of the heavy lifting. You right? know, in, in a lot of ways, I do know a few people who are, are nameless, but they have people who uh, were ghost writers for them. And then they hit it off with a ghost writer. And then as a result, they wound up uh, collaborating with official credit on the second book. Ali actually helped me uh, package my uh, first book for, and we've known each other now for uh, the better part of 15 years. So um, she helped me kind of get going social, ready for publication, and then we figured let's do something together. So uh, thankfully for us, I think we split the work uh, as close to 50-50 as possible. Nothing's ever 50-50, but you know, we, we did our best. How does that process go? How does the process of a co-writer go? Do you split chapters? Do you sit down at a keyboard together and go over things? Like how, how does it how do you start when you have a co-author and and how how does it progress? And I'm sure every situation's different. Yeah, but exactly. At least in this Yeah, situation, yeah, for our was, situation I think it was a little bit um uh of an interesting uh, situation because Ali was in the process just as we started this of switching cities. So we would do a lot of uh, remote sessions where we would plan, break down different assignments that we had uh, for doing certain aspects of certain chapters, certain interviews that she was going to run and certain ones that I was going to uh, do. 
And, you know, then we kind of passed our information back uh, from one another. So I would comment on her chapter, she'd comment on mine, uh, until bit by bit, uh, you know, there are things now where I read it and I, I can't even remember like who wrote it first or, you know, and that's the nice thing about it is that you hopefully do get the best of both worlds. Uh, and there are unique challenges because I can essentially, um, you know, really rip into something that I wrote if I'm working by myself. When I'm working with Allie and when Allie's working with me, she has to think, wait a minute, Jeremy has feelings. I can't just say, oh, this thing is crap. I can't <laughs> believe you actually thought that th this case study should go in there. It doesn't tell the story that we're trying to convey in this chapter, right? So that in some ways, that is like a unique challenge when you're working with somebody and you have to figure out picking your battles. But at the same time, it's your name on it, right? And you don't, uh, nobody's going to know if you release it with that crappy case study, nobody's going to know that that's something that the other person wrote. So you really have to be as honest uh, with other person as possible uh, because it has both of your names and there's no disclaimers as to who wrote what. Right, right. We're talking with Jeremy Goldman, the author of Getting to Like, co-author with Ali B. Zagat, who unfortunately wasn't able to get on the platform with us. Um, but thanks for trying, Ali. She's been, been trying to join us um, throughout the hour. Um, and Getting to Like, you can find it at gettingtolike.us, and that'll lead you to more information about the book and an opportunity to purchase. Let's talk a little bit about social media platforms, video platforms, things like that. What changes do you see coming to social media? Maybe a new platform, a new app, something that you know might not be on everybody's radar, but things are going to start to change. Oh, uh, <laughs> we've got another hour and a half, right? Good. I'll talk about it the whole time. No, we, we you know, the, <laughs> you can stay on no, like another course. 15, yeah, right? Fine. Yeah, no, but, but, okay. but it's funny because you could, you could talk about that topic for that long. Exactly. That could be a whole show, um, right? <laughs> but I, but I, what I would say is, um, you know, the idea of live streaming and to actually get video done right um, is one something that mm -hmm. I would definitely advocate. So right now we're in the early stages where you get a lot of uh, uh, credit just by existing. Uh, you're tr if you try to do live streaming, then uh, you can uh, pat yourself on the back because very few other people are doing it, right? But frankly, this is the same thing on Instagram and Twitter and uh, just about everything else social media related. Uh, you can actually um, get better uh, at it uh, if you want to stay ahead of the competition. Uh, you can't just say, well, I'm going to... Uh, rest on my laurels. You have to get professional equipment, for instance. You have to make sure that lighting is right. You have to make sure that you know uh, what you're saying uh, and make sure that you're eloquent and that your speaking points are you know, spot on. So I would say really one of the biggest things is just live streaming in general. There are a lot of people who know about it and you obviously are ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. I think that people here on this call uh, are ahead of the curve, obviously. But yet the average uh, bit of the population doesn't know necessarily how to use it. Uh, and at the start, a lot of people are just playing around with it. And, you know, frankly, they use it the way that you, uh, you would have used older platforms. So just like with Snapchat, bit by bit, people realize that you can create these snap stories that were storytelling. 
that wasn't really necessarily the way that you did things um, on other channels, like even YouTube. YouTube didn't have the inherent 10-second limitation, which then forced people into telling stories, right? So Snapchat evolved in a different way, and I think the challenge for everybody you know, listening to that tonight um, is to really make sure that we understand when new technologies like live streaming show up, how do we think about them, not in terms of what the old paradigm was, but uh, what, what we can do with it um, and how we can use this uh, in different ways than everything that we're using already. Right, right. And I, I think there's a split within live streaming, right, where you have the one-to-many and talk-as-you-go kind of broadcast which is periscope and facebook live if you're doing it from a mobile right and then there's apps like this one and blab for a while when it was going good and um there's other ones fire talk where it's more focused on the interview the talk show and the broadcast right and i think they're they're very different and it's almost like a different genre like i i never do the one to many I never do, um, I have never done a broadcast, I don't think, from my mobile phone. I only do where I'm engaging with somebody or I'm, you know, sitting here at a desk and a microphone and, and whatever, because that's that's what I like and that's where I'm comfortable. And I don't think you have to be on 24 hours a day and stream your entire life. But for other people are great, you know, may not be comfortable doing a show or, you know, talking about topics, but they're great at sharing a moment of their life or something that's real and raw and what have you. Right. Um, so when you talk about like improving in video, what goes to my mind is there's, it's almost like two different genres. So, yeah. you know, in the, in, you know, I know this again is another topic it could be a whole discussion, but for people who are doing this kind of stuff, which, you know, doing the more, the talk show, the 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 desktop broadcast kind of thing, which is a lot of the people that you know are likely to watch this show, right? What can they do to improve the quality of their video? It, what what is it that that you're not seeing out there that somebody can do to stand out, to get better, to to make more of an impact, to to give people more of an opportunity to find them, see them, be impressed by them, come on their show, whatever it is that they're trying to to accomplish with that. So first off, I think you actually hit a uh, nail on the head with uh, something very interesting, which is there's sometimes things uh, that uh, wind up living on different platforms simply because they have a slightly different take on things, you know, like live streaming one-on-one -on -one, uh, radio, to, uh, you know, talk shows essentially versus something else. Then sometimes there are situations where uh, one platform you know, exists for all things video, right? And uh, we might not have a whole new platform. It might live somewhere else. Generally speaking, um, if a platform can get known for the place to really succeed in one area, it has a good chance of sticking around and really building out a niche or niche uh, we were talking about in the chat room <laughs> before. Um, I say it both ways. So um, the whole entire idea 
to me is that, uh, and it's kind of like uh, visuals, right? There are some people on Instagram who use it to uh, take beautiful pictures of uh, plants and flowers. Then there are some people who use it to post inspirational sayings that are, you know, generated using a topography app, right? Which is the right usage. Well, I mean, actually, they're both kind of the right usage. And uh, bit by bit, people's own networks become kind of self-selecting. So the person who has those inspirational quotes on Instagram tends to follow other people who consume that type of content. And everybody winds up having a different type of uh, network, right? Now, the key thing is, I would say, is when we know live streaming is going to be successful, you have to think, well, how can you make it successful for yourself? Are you the type of person that does better in one-on-ones? Or are you the type of person who just likes to do broadcast one-to-many and you know travels all over the world and therefore has a ton of great content that you want to syndicate and you have access to great Wi-Fi, which is another consideration? So it's not just about... Right. Uh, you know what the technology has to offer. It's also about what you have to offer the technology. That's a great answer. That's that's really great way to look at it. Um, and and the Instagram thing is is so you, you hit such a great point because there are people who hate <laughs> inspirational quotes and say you know this is for photography only and we don't want to see your quotes. And then there's other people. Um, who find that that's why they go to Instagram is to be inspired, to feel good. It's a way to pass the time, maybe pick up a little wisdom. And then there's some people who are, you know, people aren't using the video as much as I had thought because a minute of video is quite a long time. I mean, you're, you're looking at Snapchat's what, eight, eight, ten 10 seconds, right? Yep. If that, if you get 10 seconds in a clip, right? So imagine what you can put on in a minute, but you're not finding people are, are doing it all that much. Do you think people are, are almost turned off when they see video or you just think most people aren't thinking in terms of video? You know, I mean, I think that it's one of those things that you have to lean into not just your expertise, but what are you able to do well? And I've seen people, there's no answer as to should you be doing video or should you be doing something else? But, mm-hmm. you know, going back to the point we were talking about before with um, Instagram and a few different things, working on Instagram. I mean, video has not worked super well on Instagram. Likewise, on Snapchat, if somebody's really great at witty captions, uh, then you want to shoot a lot of photos and get witty captions on on those. And that's going to help you uh, better, you know, represent Mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, Video takes more effort, right? Um, So what we're going to find is a lot of people who don't get that video takes more effort. And they're going to say video is like a get rich quick scheme how do i get as rich as possible and as short as time as possible uh, without uh putting any work into it can i just um you know actually this is a story that i tell people about uh pretty much the week or so that periscope launched uh i had extra work to get done at night and i went to um starbucks and i turned on periscope and i said who wants to watch me working at starbucks right and i turned it on and people just watched me and wrote things in the you know the the feed um like what music was i listening to on spotify and what was i working on and what was the person the crazy person muttering in the corner what were they doing 
And, you know, like the bar uh, rises over time. Like if I uh, tried that experiment uh, today, what are the odds that I would get nearly as many people, you know, because the bar is going to keep on rising. So if you want to be successful with a video and Ali, if you can hear us, I'm curious what you think about this. But but it's, uh, you know, one of those things where the first mover advantage only uh, goes so far and then you really have to work on differentiating yourself and focusing on quality. Right. And that could mean, like you had said before, it could be mean better quality video from better camera. It could mean better lighting. It could mean better presentation or set. It could mean adding, you know, graphics or different different other elements to your video. Or it could just be refining your subject matter to what your audience really want. It could be any number of things. What is there anything else that I, that we didn't cover that you would think oh that's something that you know i saw somebody do that you know other people should start doing you on know video. I, I think one of the uh the, and this is kind of alluding to some of the things you said but what ali just said in the chat room uh depending a, a lot on the uh both the creator and the end audience i mean thinking about what your end audience wants uh and what are the types of things that they respond to i've seen people uh who kind of do things that are a little bit uh tone deaf um, and also to figure out, like going back to that idea about Pinterest and the person who works with government contracts and there's a disconnect, there's, uh, <laughs> Ali said, I think it depends a lot on both the creator and uh, the end audience, but also that there are categories where it might not be the most effective format. And I really do think that that's true. Uh, you might love it and you can play around with mm -hmm. it uh, in an ad hoc way uh, just to get better at the technology but does it necessarily work for what you're trying to do? If you live stream, for instance, uh, act like events that you cover as a vlogger, right? Uh, and if you have a consistent Wi-Fi, which uh, for those of us who go to a lot of conferences knows that's a very difficult thing to rely on. But right. if you do happen to know for a fact that you can get that, it might be a really uh, effective uh, venue, right? If you wind up doing a lot of things at a library where uh, you're supposed to be quiet, uh, you probably can't live stream nearly as much, right? So <laughs> you do really have to think about uh, certain categories and certain industries where it's not going to work. People live stream people sleeping. I guess they could live stream you reading a book, right? It would be almost more action-packed than sleep. Yeah, you know, right? <laughs> and I think even, you know, Ali wrote as a joke, this Pinterest board is classified, going back to that other uh, yes. example. The great marketing. Right, you know, strategy. I mean, listen, if somebody took a Pinterest board and it, it was a joke, but like if somebody actually took a Pinterest board and then marked everything classified that they ever pinned so you could never see any of it, that would probably kind of stand out, right? So it goes back to the whole entire point of standing out and finding unique, compelling ways to, to make your content uh, you know, be more interesting than all the other options that people have uh, in terms of what they're consuming, right? What do you see the value in platforms such as Google Plus, um, Tumblr? What I what I feel are sort of second tier platforms in terms of the engagement you get in terms of the social. But at least a few years ago, when I was doing some stuff on them, they indexed extremely well. Pinterest Pinterest indexed in Google very well. I don't know if it's still does because I don't really use it that much as much as I used to. But do you think that there's a value in using those platforms just for the sake of indexing? If you can 
not need to waste a lot of time on them, or you should only be on them if you want to be social, like on any other platform. Yeah, dropping a link to things, you know, it doesn't hurt if you don't have that much of a audience, and you say, "What the heck? Why not?" If it, it's not going to really hurt you, uh, but I think that people sometimes fall under the, uh, you know. They, they, they fall for like that whole get rich quick of like, let, let me see, maybe I can do really well on Google Plus and Tumblr. And then you log in and then you have 19 notifications you, and you start to follow those notifications. And before you realize it, you've wasted an hour, you know. So uh, I, I just tell people to kind of break up their time and to say, what are the few key platforms that they really want to have most of their investment in from a time perspective? Really and start to forget really, about exactly. the other ones. You can test right. a few things out here or there. So uh, if you have a uh, certain hypothesis you want to test on Tumblr, great. You have a 10% or 20% allocation that you're all allotting to yourself to focus on experiments like that. But, but don't give yourself all of the bandwidth in the world to do something like that because... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a finite amount of time and there are a lot of platforms. It's better to try to get to be like an A minus to A plus on a few of them. Right. And and what's the future like? What's the next step Facebook's going to take in ruling the world? I mean, is it going to be through video and the, the ramping up Facebook Live? Is it going to be some something with publishing? Um, what 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 is what do you see in their game plan to keep us to to never leave Facebook to where Facebook becomes the internet. <laughs> well, first off, you assume that Facebook already does not control the world. But um, no, uh, apart from that, I mean, I think that uh, you, you hit you hit on a, a lot of really interesting topics. Um, I think that the Facebook audience network and essentially a lot of experiences, and Google's doing this too, by the way, uh, uh, where you know you have kind of Google AMP, where you have the media network, where you don't really leave mm -hmm. Google and a lot of content is hosted on Google servers so it loads faster. Uh, you're kind of seeing things like that where Facebook's uh, testing out uh, Canva and, uh, sorry, Canvas, not Canva. That's totally different. Mm -hmm. um, where Canvas, right. you can build uh, rich, immersive experiences. Um, so uh, that's one of the things that I think is a, a huge uh, challenge for people is you have to figure out uh, how to build these immersive experiences and market to people where they are, while at the same time uh, making sure that you're going to get as much organic reach uh, as possible out of Facebook. Because uh, remember, one of the nice things that you have by building a personal brand for yourself on Facebook is that you can cut through the essentially paywall that is Facebook right now for a right. lot of uh, corporate pages. Yeah, JS asks about the secret invite code to Mosaic. Are you still with Mosaic? I know you were a founder. Um, are you still involved with Mosaic? Yeah, so, so if I, and I'm not asking you to give everybody. No, no, just, no. I mean, I'll, me I'll, I'll tell you basically. Um, uh, very nice and simple. The way you get into Mosaic, it's a, it's kind of like Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club, but it's a group of digital networkers. Uh, and Ali, interestingly enough, um, we were thinking of a new name for it because uh, it previously had a different name and Ali helped figure out the acronym, what it was going to uh, stand for. We decided uh, Mosaic, but we couldn't figure out what it would stand for. And she helped kind of like reverse engineer it. Um, if anybody tweets me at Jera Marketer, uh, which I'll throw in there, uh, you essentially have to know somebody in the group and they have to invite you. Uh, and as long as you know somebody in the group, uh, then you can, uh, 
uh, get in. So, uh, so yeah, so tweet me and, uh, or tweet Allie and, uh, and we can keep that conversation going. All right, everybody to mosaic with Jeremy. Yeah, you know, and I think that Ali and I are trying to remember exactly what the um, uh, via text we're talking about this. I think it's meeting of socially active individual creatives, uh, something along those lines. But it's essentially a whole bunch of digital marketers and people who uh, operate around the uh, fringes uh, or periphery of digital marketing, like copywriters, like ad planners, things like that. Right. Ali says, or maybe meeting of social and interactive creators. We'll get back to you about that. We care more about the, the quality <laughs> of the uh, group than the, than the acronym. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. And the, the book is great. Getting to like how to boost your personal and professional brand to expand opportunities, grow your business, and achieve financial success. It's a mouthful. But it is a very powerful uh, SEO, SEO baby. That's that's what I said. Yeah, you know? it is. It is you an awesome stopping. subtitle, and it is a really great book. I, I really highly recommend it. Um, tell everybody again where they can get it, and then where else they can find you you online. Yeah, definitely. So I'm typing it in there, but getting to like dot us uh, or getting to like dot us uh, has a few links to uh, uh, check us out. Firebrandgroup.com is another great URL for me. You've got at Jera Marketer right up top. Uh, and Ali, uh, what's the best way to find you? Tweet or LinkedIn? Uh, at Ali, Ali B. Zagat? Yeah, so uh, Ali B. Zagat. And uh, yeah, Zagat. everybody says it differently. I, I, I said it differently before I met uh, Ali. And, uh, and I threw in her uh, Twitter handle as well. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. And thanks everyone for sticking with us. And Monday night, uh, we will be back on fire talk next week as we will be this Thursday for live stream sports. So hope you all can join us then have a great evening, everybody.